another edition of the Read More Podcast, the show that brings readers and writers together. I'm your host, Marva Hinton. Today, I'm chatting with Lisa Williamson Rosenberg from her home in New Jersey about her debut novel, Embers on the Wind, which came out last summer. Lisa, thank you so much for coming on Read More to talk about your work. Well, Marva, it is a pleasure to be here on your podcast. I love the work you've been doing for the reading and writing community. Thank you so much, Lisa. Uh, Embers on the Wind is about a house in Massachusetts that was a stop on the Underground Railroad. Some of the enslaved people who reached Whitaker House lost their lives there and their souls remain on the property. These ghosts show up and interact with women who visit the house, which has now been turned into an Airbnb. They still have the sensibilities of Black people who came up in slavery, so they don't always know what to make of what they see going on with the modern occupants of the house. The Black women who come through the house are of particular interest. They're modern-day women, but still seeking freedom, just like little Annie and Clementine, two enslaved women who died on the property and continued to haunt it. Lisa, I really... I just enjoyed this book so much and I was hanging on every word and it made me want to see, you know, what trouble these ghosts were going to cause and it even made me want to meet a ghost. Um, I understand that the idea for this novel, though, came from visiting a house that belonged to your in-laws. Can you explain Mm -hmm. that to me, you know, how that house inspired this novel? Sure. So, um, the house was not called Whitaker House. That came from me. But this was my father-in-law and stepmother-in-law's summer house in Monterey, Massachusetts. That's in the Berkshires, in the beautiful Berkshire Mountains. Very rustic. Um, it had been a stop on the Underground Railroad. And that was part of the um, part of the lore of the house. There, there was a whole history of the house. Um, and it had been a stop on the Underground Railroad. The um, the freedom seekers did not stay in the house when they hid. They hid in the root cellar, which was in the middle of the property. So there's sort of the location of the house and also in the middle of the property, this root cellar that's kind of creepy and ghostly and bugs and scary stuff there. Um, but there was a legend that a female freedom-seeking African-American um, went into the house or was brought into the house and died there. I had no idea why. So my um, my stepmother-in-law told me this story and I had no idea what brought her into the house. I had this idea, oh, maybe she was old and she couldn't keep up with the people she was running away with. Maybe she was injured and they came in, took care of her. Uh, yeah, abolitionists t- took care of her and she passed away for whatever reason in the house. Um, but the Other part of the legend is that her ghost still haunted the house. Now, I have to say, so I am, um, I'm a part of a multiracial family. I am biracial. Uh, uh, My mother, my mother, both my parents are deceased. So that's why I say was. My father was African-American. My mother was Jewish. Um, My husband's family is Jewish. And the reason I'm saying that now is that I had this notion that I was the only Black woman who had spent a lot of time in this house since it was a stop on the Underground Railroad. And I say that because vacation, it was a vacation home. And a lot of Black people don't go on vacation to the Berkshires. It's not a, not a Martha's Vineyard kind of beach community. And not that Black people don't ski and enjoy winter sports, but it's just that 
I was often the only one when we went around places. Like we would go to the town beach and it would be me and somebody's adopted child from, you know, wherever. So it was not a very black place. And I was wondering, you know, what does this ghost think of me if she can see me? You know, she passed away in what, 1850 in the house. You're looking for her own freedom in, in Canada, didn't make it there. And what does she think of me? You know, here I am, part of this family, ordering my husband around. I'm, I'm, I, whenever I think about the house, I always remember setting myself pregnant there because I, I was a lot of the time and, and I have just two kids, but I still have a lot of pregnant memories of being in the house, ordering my husband around. You know, you, you know how that is. Like, he doesn't know what you can or can't do for yourself. So you're like, oh, can you get me a glass of water? Can you get me one of these? Can you get, and I'm ordering this white guy around and I'm doing everything they're doing. I'm partaking of all the fun and the cookouts. I'm not the one cooking or cleaning up. Um, well, I mean, we all shared in that, but like, what does she think? And does she think, oh, wow, we've really arrived. We have equality. But then I would think like, but what does she think about the fact that I'm the only black person here? Where's everybody else? And what happens to the culture? And what is left of her? So I got to thinking about this ghost. And I remember I'm, an, I'm a night owl. So I, I would kind of, you know, be walking around the old part of the house. And one of the things I did in the book is I um, I make, I, I describe the house very much the way it was. The house was really divided. There was the old section of the house where you could see the floorboards from, from back in the 19th century. You could see all these, you know, old pieces of wood and stone, kind of the, the fireplace in the birthing room, because there was a birthing room, was kind of on a diagonal and everything was so small, but so solid and old. And then there was the new part of the house, which had this fabulous renovated kitchen with sub-zero everything and beautiful light wood rafters and everything, you know, picture perfect. And you would really go back in time as you would walk through the house into the library where everything was old and you could almost hear the whispers of the past. And I remember I would be up late. I'd be the only one up. And it's a scary house. Come on, because it's dark. You're there's the streetlights are way far away. Um, there is a road going right by the house, um, where I did see a bear once. And but but there's but it's um not populated, you know, because the everybody's property is pretty, pretty spread out. So I would walk downstairs and I would think about her and I'd try to meet her. And I never met her. But I would think about, you know, if you're really here, what do you think? And here I am. It's me, the black lady. I'm your sister. <laughs> you know? And and communicate with me. And and I and I had this this notion that, you know, she's a very old woman. Then I, when I started writing the book, I started thinking about who could she have been and what her story could have been. And and what if she came into the house because maybe she was young, maybe she was pregnant. Maybe she had the baby and it being 1850, the likelihood of that baby being the product of a rape at the hands of her enslaver, that's a very likely story. So I started to think more about her and what made her run and who, and if she was this young girl in this, you know, big plantation and kind of the favorite of the enslaver, um, wouldn't have had a lot of power and wherewithal 
to leave on her own. So who's going to be her mentor? And that was when I got the idea of little Annie, who is a field worker. And little Annie is called little Annie because she's very tiny, very wiry and very tough. And her story is that she's had seven, she's had six children sold away from her, all boys. And she has um, two stumps of fingers where the enslaver, she had tried to get food for her children from the house and she stole them from the house and got caught. That's her story. And the, in, the enslaver had um, chopped off her fingers and he's a very cruel very horrible guy with two sons who are equally horrible. But Annie is determined to get out of there. And she takes a liking to Clementine, who is the pregnant girl. And they go, there are two, two men who go with them who are important, but really Annie is the leader of this group. And, um, but, but really by the time they get to Massachusetts, it's just Annie and Clementine. So, and the reason Clementine is in the house is to give birth. The first story I wrote was the story of the birthing room. And I wrote that about the house, thinking that was going to be it. It was going to be a story of Clementine in 1850 and a young mother and psychologist um, named Galen from Brooklyn, um, who goes to visit the house when it's an Airbnb on Memorial Day weekend with her husband, um, who is white, and they're and their biracial baby, um, and something happens, and the, you know, Galen and Clementine sort of merge, these two very young mothers, um, and their stories kind of merge, and it doesn't go well. I know you've read the story, and I don't want to give a spoiler, because that story was the first thing I wrote, but it wound up being um, one of the last stories in the book. When most readers think about a story concerning uh, ghost and slavery. They think about beloved. Mm -hmm. You were all influenced by Toni Morrison's novel. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, first of all, like, is that where I got, I don't think beloved, I don't think initially, because initially I was really thinking about the house. But as I was writing the story of the birthing room, and, and I'm going to try and talk about it without a spoiler, but there is a situation. This is a young pregnant girl escaping, um, escaping, you know, being enslaved. And as she is running away, she initially thinks of the baby as, as something she doesn't want in her. And talking to Annie, who's had six children sold, Clementine kind of evolves and realizes wow, you mean if I run and I make it, my baby will be born free. And so that's not something she thinks about at first. And so the idea of the child you're carrying being free, you know, I, I, there is no way I could not think of Seth and, and um, Beloved and that a mother would do absolutely anything to stop her baby from being born enslaved. I definitely could feel mm -hmm. um the influence there and yeah. this novel is just so complex i mean you have alternative timelines and you mm -hmm. have a lot of characters from very diverse backgrounds 
So you have seers, social workers, mm-hmm. conductors on the Underground Railroad, an autistic boy who fixates on prehistoric marine animals. Mm-hmm. How long did it take you to pull all of these pieces together? And how much research was required to bring this book to life? Um, let's see. So a lot of research on, I would say a lot of research on, you know, just the little details, like, you know, what, what did, what would the trees look like in North Carolina in 1850? What would it smell like? You know, um, I did, I, I read, I read, I want to say, I, I, avoid using the word slave. And I, tr- I try to talk about enslaved people because it, it is what was done to you as a human being. But I looked at slave narratives where formerly enslaved African-Americans at the turn of the 20th century as old people who had learned to read and write were interviewed by white journalists who wanted their stories told. And their stories are pretty consistently like we were pretty happy. Our master wasn't so bad. I would like, and then if you look at what happens when the journalist is black or when they are writing their own, first of all, the language changes. It is proper, it, you know, as what we think of as proper English, like the written, the written, many of the written slave narratives are, you know, that what, what my mother once called the Queen's English, and I'm not using that phrase anymore, but you know what I mean? It's very standard English. There's no yaza maza, there's none of that. But when, when they are speaking to white people who they may not trust, who they may fear, who, you know, the idea of, I could be killed for showing that I'm as smart as this person. And that sensibility that never leaves them, you know, oh, we were always well taken care of, which is, which is so far, you know, and, and it's, it of course was perpetuated by, you know, Hollywood, um, you know, how many people are like, oh, Gone with the Wind is my favorite movie. Like, yeah. Um, but so I did a lot of research in terms of that and I made a conscious choice the that I need a conscious choice to have um, the people who are enslaved, the way they speak to one another, they speak, they don't speak with any dialect. And that was just a choice that felt right to me. In terms of prehistoric marine reptiles, I don't know why I've been obsessed with prehistoric marine reptiles for many years. So I guess I did some research, but I've been reading about them and I've been just into, you know, giant mosasaurs and plesiosaurs and all that for quite some some time. And I've always wanted to have a character in the book that was really into it. And I did, um, so I don't know if you know, I am a psychotherapist. And at one point there was a little boy who I worked with, who was autistic. He was older than Timothy. And his, his thing was, um, was he into, I think he was into ships, but it was just like the conversation always came back to ships and whaling ships and things like that and all kinds of ships. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of combined and, and, you know, and got there in terms of, 
you know, in terms of social work, I am a social worker. I worked in, I worked for an adoption agency right out of graduate school. Um, so I worked in the field of adoption for three years as a social worker for the, um, for families adopting, you know, there were couples and single moms uh, looking to adopt. So I did a lot of work in that, in that field, which was really interesting. And that kind of finds its way into every, into my writing a lot because on the social worker side of adoption, um, it's a whole different world. I mean, we hear a lot of stories about, uh, you know, that adoptive parents write or that adult adoptees write. Um, but from, you know, from a social worker's perspective, seeing what both sides go through. Um, so that, so I lived some of that research. Well, everything felt uh, very authentic. I could tell you, you put a lot of work in. Thank you. Um, Another really interesting thing about the novel is the way it goes back and forth in time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one minute we're at Whitaker House in the 1800s, and then we're there in the 1980s, and mm -hmm. then in 2019. Why did you want to explore characters and themes across time and space like that? I think it's hard to live in this country as a black woman, particularly a black multiracial woman and not think about context, like where we were, what it was like then, what it was like in terms of, you know, what it was like in terms of, um, you know, things like class, colorism, you know, the fact that you're the favored in 1850 if you're light-skinned and being favored means you are a victim of pretty much the most sinister act that can take place in humanity. Like that makes you the favorite. Whereas in the 1990s, you've got Pam and Michelle, not Pam, you've got uh, Kay and Michelle and Kay is lighter skinned. So she's the pretty one. And because Michelle is, is considered not the pretty one and, and not a girl who's going to be stared at or leered at, she is left alone with someone who turns out to be a predator. And so it, 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 I, I kind of am looking at the meaning of race, class, and complexion in different contexts to notice that, for example, in, 19, in, in 2019, Galen has access to every fabulous um, childcare product in the book. And um, she's got a job, she can shop for fabulous olives wherever she wants, and yet she still has to get done up to go to the grocery store. Um, you know, Kay has the same thing. She owns her own brownstone. She has a designer, a beautiful designer clothes. Um, she can send her children to whatever Taekwondo class she wants, but she trips and falls in the street and gets a smudge on her coat. And she's immediately invisible to the realtor who sold her her brownstone in the first place who's showing people around and says, oh, we ver we never see stuff like, we never see that kind of thing in this neighborhood, meaning a homeless black woman. And Kay became a homeless black woman just because she sprained her, she twisted her ankle in the street and got a smudge 
on her coat. She, her, 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 you know, this big sought after grail of, of um, affluence went, went out the window in the blink of an eye and she was exactly the same as little Annie might've been. Um, so to look at, you know, how, how far we've come and, you know, two things, you know, race means that the, the distance we've come could be taken away by somebody making a snap judgment about you. And then on the other hand, Kay and Galen are both married to white men. And what does that mean in, in terms of their, um, in terms of their identity and what have they, what have they lost to gain this freedom? So going back and forth and playing with race, with class, with color and seeing how different are we? You know, and when I use that word almost, like have we gotten, you know, have black people, have women attained this, this thing that we wanted, this freedom? And it's kind of like, yeah, well, almost in, in some ways. Well, I actually wanted to ask you about the number of biracial characters in this book, because mm -hmm. a lot of the women who identify at black, as Black are actually biracial. Mm -hmm. They have Black mothers and white fathers. Yeah. And yeah. as you know, as you mentioned, during slavery, these children were born of rape. But mm -hmm. your modern women choose to be in relationships with white men. Yeah. And mm -hmm. in two cases you've talked about with uh, Galen and Kay, uh, they married these men and they live in majority white worlds where sometimes they're mistaken for the help. And mm -hmm. after visiting Whitaker House and being visited by the ghosts that haunt the place, they look at their relationships a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, as you were writing this, were you seeing these relationships as speaking to progress? I, I think that's a really good question because I, I see Galen's relationship with Rob as very different from Kay's relationship to Andy. And Andy has like a really tiny part in this book. Like nobody, nobody reading this book would probably even remember his name because he's, he's a, a very minor character. Um, I put Rob in there on purpose and I also made Rob's eyes green and I made him look sort of like a Viking. And that's sort of in the, the slave catcher, the, the patty roller actually also has green eyes. And that's why Galen kind of going back in this mind meld with Clementine mistakes her husband for the uh, patty roller for this, the slave catcher. Um, so now Andy is Jewish and he's like sort of, they kind of put him out there and, and, and I'm, I am biracial and Jewish. So, so it's a different, and, and also I put in Maxine who is also Jewish. So these are different for, this is a different white. And I put that, you know, when Maxine talks about, um, when the, the Connecticut couple come in and, you know, they're sort of like blonde and Maxine has this moment of like, oh, I've been blonde, but it's always been kind of bo a bobbled apologetic kind of blonde. And, and her uh, liberal Jewish background is just very different from theirs. So I didn't see, I was, I did not put Andy and, I didn't put Andy and what's his name, Rob in the book to show progress. Because I don't think, 
So, so my aim in having Kay, who came later, and Galen both married to white men, I didn't view that as progress. I wanted that to be something that Clementine would be shocked by, or little Annie would be shocked by. Like you got your freedom and you married one of them. And that, that, and that, you know, Rob is kind of a goofy, happy-go-lucky guy. And he basically is the classic dad, like Galen's the expert on Olivia. He does whatever she says. They have to pull over three times so that Olivia can nurse on their way up there. Rob is like annoyed, but he is solicitous and he doesn't slam the car door, even though he kind of wants to. So he's this like, um, mom's in charge kind of dad and he's white and he's not thinking about Galen as a black person. Like he's a white guy who doesn't literally doesn't have to, he doesn't have to see race. He can be colorblind and their marriage is sort of like works as long as they're both seeing each other as Rob and Galen. And when Galen goes to the house and is sort of influenced by Clementine, there's no way she can see him as just Rob. I didn't put that in there to represent progress. I put it more in there as a foil to what does this mean? And I also wanted um, both of them to have in common that their children were biracial and that they both appeared much darker than their children. Because Kay can look at Galen, who's younger, and say, oh, that was me. I want us to be friends. And so we don't know so much about Galen and her social life because that wasn't what that story is about. It's more her um, trying to break out of this postpartum depression. Kay is like the thing she's never, she's always said she would never be is the, the one black friend of a slew of white women. And she mentions a sorority that she'd been in a black sorority, but all her sorority friends are in different, they aren't in Brooklyn with her. So she is that. And to have friends, she sort of had to put her blackness on the back burner. And, um, and that, that makes her kind of crave this friendship when she sees Galen and she sees Galen nursing a baby who looks white. And Kay's like, oh my gosh, that was me. And I bet everybody says the same stuff to her. Like that baby can't be yours. So, and some of that actually came from my own life. That didn't happen to me that I was nursing my son who actually, at, who at the time really did appear white. And, um, and somebody actually said that to me. Like, there's no way that baby is yours. And it's like, what? I didn't say the part about the midwife. My friend did. I wouldn't have thought of that that quickly. But my friend said, yeah, she's the midwife as a joke. And um, and that that was where I got that scene. Well, that's that uh, <laughs> one, one of your scenes uh, in the book. Yeah. That is like a really interesting question that you're asking. You did it. Was that? meant to be progress progress that they're married to white men and it was more of a foil but that's such an interesting question one of the other themes that really comes through in this novel is familial separation and mm -hmm. particularly black mothers being separated from their children so 
We see that in little Annie, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. she had six of her sons sold away from her. Yeah. But we also see it in some of the modern characters. Uh, in the 80s, a teenager is coerced into yeah. mm-hmm. baby for adoption. And then in 2019, a child is stolen from her parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The idea that your children aren't really your children was you know, one of the most devastating aspects of slavery. Why did you want to examine the impact of that and then bring it to today's times? It is so, it's still, you know, as as a child, you know, and I was born in 66, I watched Roots along with everybody when it came out and the idea of your child being sold away you know, when I was a child, that was the most devastating thing I could think of. And as a mother, it's also the most devastating thing I could think of. And as I'd said, I worked for an adoption agency for three years. So after, so having this notion of, it's such a part of our history that black children were separated from their mothers. And then I'm working at an adoption agency and I was, um, there were different programs. There were, there was domestic adoption and there was international adoption, but among in the domestic adoption department, there was the African-American program. And um, for some reason, it surprises a lot of people to learn that most of the adopting families in the African-American program were African-American because there were white families who were like, you know what, we don't want to wait for a baby and we don't care what race it is. We are happy to take a child who's black. And we would be like, yeah, okay. And you're going to have to get in line behind the 500 black people who are, who are adding you waiting for these babies. But still, even though these were babies who were going to be raised by black families, knowing that they were separated from their biological mothers for often, you know, reasons for often often it was the idea you know i would say pretty much 100 percent of the time it was the choice of the birth mother to place their baby but but um the impact of that and and uh seeing the the transition and kind of being the one because often as the social worker for the adoptive couples i was the one who would go downstairs go to the pediatrician, hold the baby in my hands and ride the elevator up with these infants. And I would go to the waiting couple or the waiting single mom, because we did have those and say, are you ready to meet your child? And, and that just was, that just was so surreal for me. Not that it was upsetting because it was a beautiful moment, but it was still like, while I was in that elevator and the baby was in between parents, there was something so complicated about that. And I'm actually writing an essay about that, that moment of being alone with a child who was in between, just like two minute elevator ride. I, and a lot of this, did, just so, so we're very clear, as a, as a fiction writer, a lot of this kind of happened. I wasn't like, ooh, let me, let me separate some of these kids from their mothers. It was kind of like an organic thing that happened. And it is very upsetting to think of. Um, but but it kind of it it felt organic. Like, um, and I think, you know, the the part about almost all the stuff that happened 
400 years ago, 200 years ago. You know, when we talk about slavery is over, there are so many different things that, that continue to happen and could happen again and still happen. And, um, you know, you use the kind of the image of the obelisk with Kay. So Kay has been, um, she has been removed from her biological mother, Pam, in a way that wasn't Pam's choice. And as she grows, there are little cracks that open in the world for her. She's sort of a seer. And through those cracks in the world, she can see not only her own past, not only her birth mother's past, but she can see all the way back to when babies were separated from their families through slavery. You're a psychotherapist. And I was just wondering what role that career played into your writing or, you know, how that shades your writing, the the training you've had, the experience talking to so many people. So the nuance of human emotion um, and the nuance and the impact of trauma, uh, but, but big T trauma like rape, but also little T trauma like shame, you know, the shame of being in a crowd of people and you're underdressed, the shame of, you know, your mother introducing you as, oh, so-and-so is the smart one, so-and-so is the pretty one, like those little, little teensy traumas shape you and how the little differences between us make us experience everything in unique ways. And, and I, and I pay attention to that as a therapist, you know, I say to my clients all the time when, you know, if their faces shift, you know, if I see somebody kind of shrink a little bit or, or get teary, you know, what's happening right now, what's happening right now in the room? What are you, what, what are you, what are you noticing? What are you feeling? And And how do you then describe that? How do you describe an emotion? And that's kind of what I love about writing is finding the words that can make it from my brain to your brain and you can, and it can resonate for you in the same way. And I, um, you know, I used to be, I used to be a ballet dancer and I was very much interested in choreography and what that could convey. And I think when I stopped dancing, I didn't miss it so much because of writing, because it's kind of choreographing words. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so that, that's why, and, and that's why also in, in everything I write, there are, there are therapists. I mean, you don't see Galen as a psychologist and, um, but the therapist in the book is Calliope and I kind of made her the therapist for everyone. And she's not, um, you know, her, I don't, I don't say what her degree is, but her way is she's kind of a healer. She's kind of a healer. She tells both Kay and Michelle kind of how to reclaim their power and how to heal, you know, for, for Kay, it's kind of how to heal her relationship with her sister. Um, who she has, who Michelle, who she has harmed. Well, Lisa, let's talk now about what you like to read. Okay. Uh, are there books that you find yourself turning to again and again? 
you know, I always call these go-to books because they're ones you constantly are picking up and opening and, you know, maybe you don't read the whole thing again, but maybe there's just a certain parts you want to yeah. read again. Do you have anything like that? Yeah. I mean, I am not, I'm just saying, I'm not a big rereader just because I feel like there's so little time and there's so much out there that I want to take in. But I, I will say, you know, Toni Morrison, yeah, I go back to the Levitt I've read a bunch of times. Um, the Bluest Eye is is just like the Bible on so much and, and childhood trauma, but the meaning of colorism and, um, and it, you know, just so brilliant. Um, I would say, yeah, I... I bet, well, I have authors who keep coming up with stuff that, that I really love. Um, I will say in terms of, you know, getting the idea of having these interlinked stories, um, I really loved, I loved Elizabeth Sturt's Olive Kitteridge, but I loved Anything is Possible more somehow. It was, there was something about that. And I read it before I read I Am Lucy Barton. But her her style and the way she writes um, very much speaks to me. Um, I loved, of course, the under the um, Underground Railroad um, by Colson Whitehead. Um, I am thinking about writers that have just spoken to me over Jesse Redmond Fawcett. Um, kind of got me through a very a very complicated year when I was living in Seattle and I found, I hadn't read her before. And I picked, I picked up plum bun in a bookstore and it was just so fascinating to me. You know, the, the notion of, of, you know, again, I was drawn to stories of, of colorism and what it means to, what it means to, to cope with this kind of, you know, squishy, um, nebulous concept of race as a black woman in America. And I'm, I'm just drawn to stuff like that. Um, I, let's see, I'm just thinking there's so many books that I loved. The most recent book that I loved and was blown away by was, um, well, Brandon Taylor, I, I read Real Life by him when it came out. And I just finished Filthy Animals, which is, um, he is so brilliant at the nuance of human experience. And it's a, it's, it's a subtle, uh, it's the, the book is all about interactions and human beings experience of one another, um, and trauma. And it's, you know, the stories of and Filthy Animals kind of center around this guy named Lionel, who is a grad student math major who has recently come, who's recently attempted suicide and is kind of trying to find his bearings, trying to figure out what it'll mean to get back, get back into his life. But he's also kind of grappling with who he is and how people respond to him. Um, and, and that just blew me away. But, but what I was going to say, a, a book I really loved uh, was Alice Elliott Dark's um, Fellowship Point, which is another one that's so just a, does such a brilliant job on the human experience and experiences of one another. And I enjoyed that. Uh, um, and then 
I, I would say another book that I do keep going back to is um, uh, Dr. Honoré Fennon Jeffers' um, w. Love Songs of W.E.B. Du Bois, which is just the quintessential, absolute story of this country. <laughs> It's, and it's so beautifully written um, and she is incredibly gifted. So, you know, it's eclectic. What I, what I like, what I enjoy, I will say um, the, I did my senior thesis like on Virginia Woolf and I choreographed, a, I choreographed a ballet about Virginia Woolf's writings and suicides. So she's somebody whose books are in shreds on my shelves. Um, but I think I, I feel like I, I had to kind of move past that phase. Well, what about books that just didn't do it for you? I mean, do you have some uh, a book that you think of immediately that either you couldn't get through or you, once you finished, your reaction was very different than other readers or mm-hmm. uh, and critics? Yeah. So here's, here's what I will say, um, because I have, um, I, I'm kind of impatient as a reader and I don't tend to finish books that I'm not enjoying and I don't, um, so I, so, so I guess the answer is really no, I never get to the end of a book and go like, oh, that wasn't so good. I will start a book and be like, oh, I'm not in love with this, but let me just give it 20 more pages. And I fall in love with it. And a book that happened to me with what, you know, the, um, Alana Ferrante, uh, the lying lives of adults. I loved that book, but at first I was like, oh, I don't want this book. And I'm glad I stuck with it. So, um, yeah, I'm thinking of other books that that happened with. I don't know, but most books that I, most books I, I finish, I love. And I'm like, uh, and I know on Goodreads, you know, people hate me on Goodreads. I give a lot of five-star reviews because if I finish the book, I'm really enjoying it. So I don't know what that says about me, but um, yeah, I will say this. If we're talking about things I don't like, um, I think we talk so much about representation in books right now. And I think good representation is really important to me. I read a lot of, I mean, I, I read a lot of diverse authors. I read a lot of, um, a lot of Asian and South Asian and white, black, um, uh, Middle Eastern. And, and um, I think representation should be good. What I will say is it doesn't bother me so much if there is no representation. For example, there isn't a single black character in this whole book. That's okay. But if you put one black character in the book and that character represents every single stereotype you've ever learned, like I'm going to have a real problem with that. Like the, there is a book, um, there's an author that I used to absolutely love and I'm not going to name him because I just don't want to, you know, but he was my absolute favorite author. And then I picked up a book by him and everyone spoke normally and every line by the one African-American character was written almost phonetically, not even dialect, not even AAVE, but 
as Gwen again, like it was so bad. And I realized, holy moly, you think that no black person is ever going to read one of your books. It has never occurred to you that a black person or an Asian person is going to pick up your book and read it. And at that moment, it changed his other books for me because I was like, okay, you didn't want me reading your books from the beginning. So it almost makes you feel like distanced and detached. So that was the representation should be good. And I know there's all this, there's a lot of debate about who can write what. And I do think that's important. Like if you are going to write a character who's different from yourself, get a sensitivity reader, but maybe, you know, and I, I, I don't want to make a blanket statement, but, but get a sensitivity reader, but also imagine what it would feel like to be that other person reading this book. Like, I know that um, I, I, I saw a review in my book that they liked my book, except for the LGBTQ stuff in it. And I was like, is that because you didn't want there to be LGBTQ stuff in it? But I did have an LGBTQ sensitivity reader. There's one lesbian relationship that is kind of for the whole, it's in two stories. The, the same people are in two different stories, as you know. And, um, but that was, and I wish that person had elaborated, but because I did want to be careful about that. I wanted to represent people well, if I was going to represent them. Yes, I, I agree with you on that. And you don't have to have black characters. Yeah your book you know maybe there aren't that many black right. people in the world or that you know yeah. intimately mm -hmm. but yeah. I agree if you're going to put one in take some time and uh mm -hmm. make sure that you right. are right. doing right. that character justice mm -hmm. yes. yeah so what are you reading right now right now okay <laughs> right now I'm reading um American Midnight it's about uh the it's about the it's nonfiction book and I'm completely forgetting the author because I'm, I'm reading it. I'm, I have it going on audiobook, and uh, it, it's about uh, it's the story of um, the years between uh, 19, 1914 uh, and 1921, and kind of World War One and the beginning of surveillance in this country, and how what's now called the FBI, the, which was just the Bureau of Investigation, started really surveilling citizens and why and how, you know, what made an American trader back then and kind of, you know, Wilson's decision to enter World War One and the financial interests of this. Country. And I just like that. I like, you know, on audiobooks, I like nonfiction um you know, sociopolitical stuff. My favorite, favorite book I read last year was Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. Like, it's incredible. Um, so I can't remember who wrote. Oh, yeah. And right now I am, right now I'm reading, because um, I'm, I'm, the book I'm working on is turning into a thriller and I'm working on, I'm reading Someone Else's Life by Lynn Lau Butler. And I'm enjoying it very much, but I don't want to say anything else about it because I'm kind of at the beginning. Well, Lisa, I want to thank you so much for coming on Read More. Uh, it was a pleasure talking to you and reading your novel. 
Thank you. Marva, you too. I've enjoyed talking to you so much and I appreciate it. Please go to our website, readmorepodcast.com to find out how to win a free copy of Embers on the Wind. You can also help Lisa and the show by buying her book on our site. Please follow us on Twitter at Read More Podcast and like us on Facebook. Join us again in two weeks for another edition of the show that brings readers and writers together. Until then, I'm Marva Hinton reminding you to read more.